Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. My name is John Carlos. I'm so excited to be with you today. I use he, him pronouns. And today we are continuing a series called Out. We're looking at the, cel- we're looking at the story of liberation for not only God's people, but of course, for us. Um, and my hope and my goal for our time together is that you would know deep in your bones that you are a thread and we are a tapestry, that you are a breath and we are an atmosphere, that you are a drop and we are a mighty river, that you are a person, yes, but we, we are a people. We are the people of God. And we're going to talk about collective liberation. We're going to talk about collective identity. Um, and we're going to talk about collective sin. We're going to realize that some of the individualism that we've gained from our culture and from kind of American Western ideals it actually limits us, actually prevents us from seeing the greater story that God is writing. Amen? Amen? Um, and so before we get to the good stuff like collective liberation and collective identity, I want to talk to you about a concept that I think is so foreign, so different, so unique to our culture, and that's collective sin. Uh, and again, I, as I looked at the passage that I had to preach out of, I mean, we've got blood, we have sin, we have atonement. There's a lot of things here that um, don't make a lot of sense to our culture and to our time. Um, uh, how many of you, uh, if you know me, you know this truth about me. I love chicken tenders. I absolutely adore chicken tenders. My food pyramid is just like uh, an altar with a chicken tender at top. That's what my food pyramid is, okay? It doesn't even have a top. The top is three chicken tenders stacked together, okay? When I was a kid, I would love um, Burger King chicken tenders. Do you know what I'm talking about? They were crown-shaped. That is the ideal shape of a chicken tender. I'm not talking about chicken nuggets. I'm not a pagan. I'm talking about chicken tenders, and I love those chicken tenders. I was going to be, I kid you not, my mom would tell me that I was going to be the president and CEO of Burger King because that's where they made my favorite food, okay? And then they took that away like corporate America does, and then my favorite place, yeah, right? My favorite place to eat chicken tenders I just want you to guess. Okay, just imagine right now. What does 12-year-old Jean want to eat? Where? Red Lobster, okay? Red Lobster had the best, the best chicken tenders. It's surprising, I know. But believe you me, I tried them all. I ate all of them. And, and Red Lobster had it, y'all. It had it. It had it. Uh, and then they took them away like, you know, corporations do. Right now, Raising Cane's is doing a great job. It's doing a great job. I love me chicken tenders, but I could never kill a chicken. Do you know what I'm talking about? I could never. I could never. Like, the world could end. The zombie apocalypse could happen. It could have been two weeks without food, and suddenly we stumble into a store that somehow has a living chicken in it, and I will still starve. I will, I don't, I don't know how to kill a chicken. I don't know how to cook a chicken, cut it. I don't know how to do any of that. I, in my head, chickens are just chicken tenders with eyes on top. That's what, that's what I think. I'm, I'm being told that's not biologically true. 
But again, we are a people where some of these symbols, some of these stories, some of these metaphors don't make a lot of sense. And I want to, I want to admit that, right? I wanted to admit that, like, we're talking about lambs that are slain and like, it's complicated, but I hope that you would discover in our time together that you are part of something bigger than yourself. That this story is greater than just a couple years that you've been alive. That liberation and the flow of liberation has been happening since day one and that you are invited to participate. Now, we look at the story and it starts out uh, with oppression. It starts out with supremacy. It starts out with the people of God living in slavery. And we find out about a pharaoh that nine times was unwilling to repent. Nine times, even after catastrophe, was unwilling to change course, unwilling to do something different. And nine times, unwilling. And not only nine times, but you realize that there are several times in the story where Pharaoh says, fine, I'll let your people go. Just pray to God to end this catastrophe, to end this consequence, to end this plague. And of course, Moses prays to God and the catastrophe ends. And what does Pharaoh do? He keeps sinning. He keeps being unwilling to let God's people go. Does that sound like anything you've heard of? Have you heard of any elected leaders or any powerful people who are unwilling to change course, unwilling to choose a new way, unwilling to choose life over death? Right? And so we have this idea. This idea is that you and I are deeply interconnected. You and I are deeply interconnected. I'm not saying that we should be connected. I'm saying that we are. The options before us are not being connected and being disconnected. The options before us are an awareness of our deep connection or the illusion of our disconnection, okay? There is no disconnection. There can only be an illusion of it, right? What you do affects me. What I do affects you. And one of the basic ideas of the scriptures is that God doesn't just judge a person. God judges the nations. God doesn't just judge Bob. God judges societies, peoples, societies. And so I, I think it's important that we realize that the consequence of what was going on in Egypt, it, it, from we look at this passage, we realize that the sin of Egypt was so great that it cost the life of every household. It cost the life of everyone from the highest to the lowest. It even cost the lives of not just people, but livestock, of cattle. Somehow the sin of Egypt was so great, it affected the land. It affected the water. It affected the air. It affected the soil. There was no disconnection. All these ancient cultures would understand that sin isn't just something you and I do individually, but that a nation does, that a society does, that we could set up a society with hierarchy and supremacy, and God will hold that society accountable. Because God will always hold us accountable. And so we learn in this passage about a sin that was so great that it it was it costs the life of people in every household. Are there sins so great in our time that it costs the lives of every household? Are there sins so great that everyone pays for their consequences? Um, oil companies aren't the only ones who are going to pay for climate change. Sin is collective. 
Corporations aren't going to be the only ones who pay for the way we've treated our planet, the way we've treated the water and the air and the soil. We all are. And, and truthfully, there are countries that contribute to climate change more than others. But the countries that contribute to it the least will also pay because that's the very nature of sin. You are a thread, but we are a tapestry. You are a thread, but we are a fabric. And when you pull and you tear at one thread, you pull and you tear at the whole thing. Are there other sins that cost the lives of every household? When will our country repent of its gun violence? When will our country choose a different path? When will our country look at the plagues and the pain and the catastrophe caused not by God, but by our sin, and choose liberation and choose life? Friends, we, the, the nature of sin is, is not a single-player campaign. It's always been a multiplayer game. It's never been just you. It's never been just one person. And truthfully, the language of that individualism usually justifies and condones the sins of a society, ignores the sins of a society while benefiting from it and being complicit in it. We as a culture have some unique American sins. We have some unique United States of America sins. Um, years ago, I was a college student, and I... Um, uh, you know, I was a sophomore. The Greek for sophomore, soft means wise, more means moron. Uh, sophomore is a wise moron. A sophomore is someone who thinks they're really smart, but they're not. And that's, that really describes me at that season and other seasons. I thought I was really smart. I thought I really understood. I thought I was very informed. I knew about politics locally, nationally, internationally. I understood religion and philosophy. I talked about it all the time. My sophomore year of college, I got to, as part of my religion class, I, I went to um, a, a local Islamic community center, right? My name's Iowa. And it was a great experience. I'm super grateful for everything I learned. But one of the things I learned, like, shocked me, like, surprised me, like, humbled me, like, made me have to rethink some things about my position in the world. But the local Iman informed our group of college students that during the US invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, over 500,000 civilians died. Now, if you were to ask me you know, an hour before that experience and you said, well, how many civilians do you think died in Iraq and Afghanistan? I'd be like, I don't know, 800, 500, 1,000, you know? Um, but to essentially realize that half a million people died because of the actions of not someone else's government, my government, not someone else's military, my military, and that I was 20 and an AP student in, you know, in college classes and in advanced things, and I didn't even know what our country had done. I had to be informed. I had to be reminded. I had to be told by someone else. And in that moment, I realized that in some way, there was blood on my hands. In some ways, there was sin to atone for. In some ways, I had participated and benefited from a government that preached freedom within our country and did everything else outside our country. 
that preached liberation and the land of the free and the brave in our country, but did the exact opposite everywhere else, that had principles and ideas and freedom and rights in this country, but did the very opposite elsewhere. There was blood on my hands. And friends, there is no individual sin. There is no individual responsibility. There is no individual consequences. We all pay for it. We all pay for it. You are a thread, but we are a tapestry. And how you pull and you tear at one thread pulls and tears at the whole thing. So we're looking at the story, right? We're looking at the final action toward Egypt, the final plague. And we're seeing the moment of liberation, the moment they finally get to leave Egypt, the moment they finally get to go. And this is a huge moment. Like, I know for us as Christians, we have Easter and Christmas. But for Jews, Passover is the highest of holidays. This is the beginning and the end of their calendar. Right? Did you see that passage? Right? It says, something is about to happen that I want you to start and end your calendar with. What does your calendar start and end with? What does your calendar center? Because for them, for a long time, their calendars were the Egyptian calendars, and it was about productivity and efficiency and getting a lot of bricks made. And you can center productivity and efficiency with your calendar. You can center extracting from yourself and from others in your calendar. But this God, this God gives the people a brand new calendar because a calendar is the beginning of a brand new identity. A calendar is not a, an individual attribute. A calendar is about a collective identity. And so God gives them a new calendar and he gives them, he gives them a dinner. He gives them a feast. That somehow, what you need to realize is that that moment of liberation, that moment of leaving Egypt, was not just for them. You were invited. It was not just for them. Generations were invited to participate year after year in this symbol, in this experience, in this dinner, so that liberation wouldn't just be something that they experienced. Somehow liberation is something that we as a people have experienced. That liberation would not just only be in their memory, but it would be in your memory too. And so God gives them a, a festival, a feast, a dinner. And this dinner has three symbols that I'll be honest with you, I've been a Christian now for like 22 years. I had to, I had to look this stuff up. I didn't know. I hadn't been taught these things. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't understand what unleavened bread was or bitter herbs. I didn't understand the significance of a lot of these symbols. But I want us to look into them. Not because I want to do a little history lesson with you, but because I believe that you are a thread. And together as God's people over generations, over continents, we are a tapestry. If it's just you, if it's just your story, there are things that will seem too big for you, but they're not too big for God's people. If it's just you, if it's just your story, there are things that will seem impossible, but they've never been impossible for God's people. So I want us to look at these symbols in this passage. The first symbol is unleavened bread. I want you to raise your hand if you don't know what unleavened bread is about. Just raise your hand if right now you, in the story, in the story, how many of you don't know? Great. Well, here, I want to I share this with you. So the cool thing about unleavened bread, now, 
I just want to start with like a personal problem. I cannot find good bread in Minnesota. Okay? I cannot. I've been to Puerto Rico. There's good bread everywhere. You go to Puerto Rico, you grab two breads to go home, and by the time you get home, you only have one bread because you ate it on the way. It was warm, and it needed to be eaten. You go to Ecuador, there is a bakery on every street. So if you know some good bread, you need to email me, text me, circle me, whatever you got to do because we can't find good bread here. But unleavened bread, many rabbis would talk about simplicity and humility, like looking at where we came from. But when you look at the text, one of the most important parts of unleavened bread is that they didn't have time to let the bread rise. They were leaving Egypt so quickly that they didn't have time to let the bread rise. It takes like one to two hours to let bread rise. They didn't have one to two hours. Their liberation was that quick, was that fast, was that strong, right? And so there's this idea in this passage that we're supposed to eat this meal with our sandals on, with a belt around our waist, with our staff in hand, with bread that we don't have time to let rise, because God's liberation is right at hand. It's so close. It's so near, right? The liberation of God is not something that we have to dream about long in the distance. Something about the liberation of God is so close, is so near. You better have your shoes on for this. You better have your belt on for this. You better have your staff on hand, because what God is about to do is at hand. Now, friends, I, can I tell you, there have been things, there's a part of faith that, yes, is about months and years of praying, months and years of hoping, months and years of longing for liberation. But somehow, God wanted this people and every generation after, every year after, to practice unleavened bread, to practice that liberation was not something for your ancestors, liberation was something for you too. Liberation wasn't something in your past. Liberation was in your very near future. Amen? That's unleavened bread. And then the second symbol, the second symbol was bitter herbs. Bitter herbs. Because in Exodus chapter 1, it says that the Egyptians made the lives of the people of Israel bitter. Bitter. And I just, I have to respect our Jewish brothers and sisters. And I love this symbol. I love this symbol because it acknowledges that the empire and sin are bitter and that we could do everything right and still experience that bitterness, right? I think, to borrow from some of our Buddhist neighbors, there's this understanding of pain and then there's an understanding of suffering. Pain is inevitable. We, we experience pain all, all the time. But suffering is what happens when we get stuck in pain, when we can't move past the pain, we can't heal from the pain, we can't keep going, we get stuck on why did we suffer or we get stuck on uh, we shouldn't have, like we, we can't incorporate it into the story of liberation in our lives or as a people. And so the bitter herbs reminded the people of God that somehow part of life was disappointing. Sometimes life is bitter. And not because of you, but because of sin and empire. Right? And that frees us to not let bitterness be the end of our story. That frees us from having to get stuck on the pain and the trauma. We are invited to heal because liberation is right around the corner. The last symbol is a slain lamb. 
And I struggled with this one preparing the most. I don't know how to explain this to you. I struggled with this a lot. Like we've all had kind of this symbol of a violent God in our heads. We've all had a symbol of a bloodthirsty God. We, we, we've all seen that, but, but the slain lamb asks this question. It's an important question. What do we do with the blood on our hands? What do we do with the blood in our hands? What do we do with the blood on our hands? Because there's blood. We've participated, haven't we? We've, we've, we sometimes connect more with the Egyptians than the people of Israel. We're citizens of the most powerful empire on earth. What do we do with the blood on our hands? What do we do with the ways that we've participated, been complicit, and benefited from engaged in privilege and power? Um, the first option we have before us is we can, um, we, can, we can act like it's not there. We can act like there's no blood on our hands. But blood is sticky and blood stains. And blood is obvious to everyone uh, who's looking. There's blood on our hands. And I, I've met people, truthfully, who act like we've never done anything wrong as a country, who act like the United States of America is like Captain America, right? Who's never done anything wrong, who's only had good intentions, who's only a hero and a savior to the world. And that's not true. But I've met Christians who act like the church has done nothing wrong. Like the church has no sin or no skeletons or nothing under its rug. But there is blood. There has always been blood. And we can act like we're not responsible. I've never ordered a drone strike, but my power and my privilege has benefited from it. I've never, I've never um, committed an atrocity, but I have participated in a society that is willing to consider that just a, a cost of doing business. We can act like it's not there, but it's still there. The second option, the second path to what we do with the blood on our hands is we can, we can eternally feel bad about it. We can eternally feel bad. We can take it on ourselves, that guilt, that shame. We can punish ourselves for the ways that everything and everyone is bad. And I, I think that this is an option a lot of people choose, but I think it's worth noting that sometimes when we center our guilt, we're actually just centering ourselves. We're not centering the countries we've harmed, the people we've harmed, the, 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 the groups that we've marginalized. We're making it still about us. And the other thing is, is that what we're going to discover is that shame is a cell, but liberation is a door. That shame is a cell that imprisons us from being able to move into the life God has for us, but liberation is a door covered in blood that says walk into a brand new life, walk into a new reality, walk into a new way of being, walk out of the oppression you've lived in and walk into the promised land. We can act like there's no blood on our hands, that we've not participated, that we've not um, engaged. We can eternally feel bad. We can center ourselves and our guilt and our shame. Or, um, or we can have a dinner where we eat bitter herbs and we remind ourselves that sin and empire are bitter. They're not for us. We can have unleavened bread and we can remind ourselves that salvation is not 10,000 years away, that it's, it's so close. 
it's so near. And we can eat a slain lamb. It wasn't just sacrificed. It wasn't just put on the door. No, no, no. Somehow the death of this thing brought us life. Something we ate. Something we ate as a family. This was an identity now as a people. And we can remember that God is not a masochist. That God does not need our suffering or our pain. God does not require that we uh, are damaged for God to liberate us. God does not enjoy our suffering. God does not need our firstborn son. God doesn't need our pain. Instead, he invites us into liberation because, my friends, the people of Israel had a lamb, but we have a lamb too, don't we? There was a lamb that came to Jerusalem on the 10th day, the very day the lambs would have been selected, that was chosen by the powerful to die. We have a lamb that changes everything because what you realize is that in Exodus, God set the people of Israel free, but at the cross, God wants to set humanity free. In Exodus, God set his people free, the Israelites free, But somehow at the cross, the Egyptians are included. Somehow at the cross, every nation and people are included. At the cross, we discover that the cross is not the end of our story. It's just the beginning because just as their doors were covered in blood, there is a door that we can walk through. There is a door that isn't the end of our story. It's actually the beginning. A lot of Christians and evangelicals, they think the blood is the end. They think the blood is the point. They think the blood is where we stop and have a party. But no, my friends, the blood is just a door into a brand new life. The blood is just a door into a brand new world. If the blood doesn't lead to real and tangible liberation, then I don't know what you're doing. We have a lamb, a lamb that was given to us to remember that it's not just your sin, it's our sin. And it's not just your salvation, it's our salvation. God will set a people free because you are a thread, but we are a tapestry. You are a breath, but we are an atmosphere. You are a drop, but we are a mighty river. You are a person, but we are the people. We are the people of God. Amen?